The advancement of technology, like an epidemic, does not stay within neat national borders. And by that, I mean that when it comes to the kind of systems we are dealing with, issues of privacy, civil rights abuses, and the like that inevitably arise from their use cannot result in holding only one country accountable. For example, when it comes to a social network platform like Facebook, if its algorithms are being used to influence elections both here and abroad, and that ends up affecting voter turnout and thus the result of that election, who do we hold accountable? Who governs that? And if we interpret that tool as having violated the sovereignty of the country in which that election was held, essentially its right to have and monitor its own fair elections, who do we hold accountable for the violation? Does the accountability lie with the company that created the tool to begin with? Or is it the government of another country which is suspected of manipulating the algorithm to influence voters? We can't say that just because a tool was created in one place, that all of the implications of its use are only to be regulated where it was created. Rather, continuing with the example of Facebook, these tools are being created everywhere, its users are everywhere, and thus no single government can address the impact of its use. So if that's the case, what do we do about it? If one country cannot be held responsible for the tools we're seeing now, maybe we should consult an international model. Fortunately, I was able to meet someone at the conference who could share a first-hand insight of how these issues were addressed, or not addressed, in the United Nations. Daniel Pedraza, a former UN data specialist and technologist. For reference, on June 26th of 1945, the United Nations Charter was signed and came into effect in October of that same year, ushering in a new intergovernmental organization in the wake of the Second World War, meant to maintain international peace and security, develop friendly relations among nations, and be a center for harmonizing the actions of nations. In other words, this body of countries, or member states as they're referred to, developed a framework to debate over and work together to solve international crises that, by the nature of the term international, had cross-border implications. Granted, this body had never dealt with the cross-border implications of entities like Facebook, Google, or Amazon in its early years, but someone involved in the greater mission to change that had this to say. My name is uh, Daniel Pedraza. I'm an engineer by training, an entrepreneur, and a public interest technologist. Really quickly, I guess, before we start, what is a UN technologist? What what does that what is that job? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So that's not an actual an actual title. Um, my actual title was data innovation specialist, and I once had a, a, a senior. A senior UN official will look at my business card and actually ask if that was a real title, if that was like, if that was like a real thing. Um, yeah, so we are, uh, Global Pulse was, uh, it's a small initiative that was established by the Secretary General and it's, it's in the executive office of the, um, of the SG and it was established to develop, evaluate, uh, improve innovative tools for real-time monitoring and sort of incorporate new perspectives into into policy development try to mimic what the private sector uh, what the private sector does very well um, in the in sort of within the mandate of, of the UN sort of um, create a world where 
real-time digital information on, on, on human well-being and populations that the UN serves is available and accessible to all and can be used um, globally as a, as a sort of as a driver of, of sustainable development and to help achieve the sustainable development goals. The, the main objective of global policy was to really help push things forward, right? To to sort of act as as an innovation driver, help develop uh, and create that enabling environment, and sort of bring in those new capabilities and, and sort of establish that organizational capacity within the UN system to to really harness and use these tools, big data, machine learning, and sort of all of these uh, uh, analytical technologies and sort of provide a platform to like help blend data science for you know prediction and monitoring and, and sort of looking at socioeconomic trends and evaluate program impact and sort of new ways of doing what the UN is doing. So the the first big question, big idea question that I have is how you define artificial intelligence. If you can if you can give a definition yeah. for that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I struggled with this one. I think uh I think it's not it's not an easy it's not an easy um, question. You know, Judea Pearl he sort of argues that um, we don't really we don't really know what intelligence is, and so we're like we're handicapped by that lack of that incomplete understanding. But um, to me, I think it's uh, artificial intelligence AI is a digital process or a behavior that showcases agency and the ability to problem solve. So I think it, it goes into uh, causal reasoning by machines, if you will. Um, I think that would be the, the way I defined it. So I have a couple of questions. First thing is, how did you get interested in artificial intelligence and its governance? And also, how did you get involved with this course? Um, have you always been interested in this? Like, when did that, when did that start? Uh huh. Yeah. So I think, as with most people that are that touch this field, there is some sort of romantic association with sci-fi. Uh, so I definitely had that. Um, but I, I I am an engineer. Um, I studied aerospace engineering, and then sort of got a master's in in aerodynamics, computation. Um, so I'm I am an engineer. Um, and then my sort of my introduction to AI really came through um, natural language processing uh, when I was working at a startup called Quid in, in San Francisco. Um, and there, from then on, it was just kind of like a slippery slope into sort of technology, entrepreneurship, and I sort of really uh, came into my own and grew uh, during my time in San Francisco. And then sort of like the real the real, I guess, entry into the AI field was more from the AI policy side of things mm. at the UN, sort of like having to think about the applications um, and, and the conversation around sort of like some of these new new developments from the technological side, but also then also um, the, the the effects of it. Um, and then sort of my the, the rubber stamp on my sort of AI um AI knowledge really came from you know being very fortunate, being very fortunate to get accepted into the the assembly cohort, which is is a program run by the um, Berkman Klein Center at Harvard and and the and the Media Lab. Um, and so there we were. This year's cohort was looking at the ethics and governance of AI, um, and that was um, that was really where I, I sort of 
really came into my own, like really comfortable with like being able to be somewhat of a translator uh, between the technical side and then the policy, uh, the policy aspects of, of this conversation. And then just looking at the news day in, day out, it's a very sort of timely, timely topic that's, that's only going to grow in importance because it does affect everybody, whether you understand AI and or whether you even utilize some of these digital tools. Yeah. So you mentioned before that you kind of came into the world of artificial intelligence through policy and your work with the UN. What were the conversations like around subjects like these within the UN? And also, how do you think the world of the United Nations fits into artificial intelligence? How do you think they connect? Yeah, yeah. So I think it's it's super important. Uh because we have to think about the cultural aspect, the ethics and the norms of artificial intelligence or algorithmic decision-making. Um, and so the UN being a convener of, uh, or a platform for, for, for all to have a voice is, is sort of like the right, the right place. Um, and early on in my career, I was having a debate uh, with, with my director uh, about sort of um, language and you know lack of translation and sort of like the, the importance how of, of, of how even just your language as your cultural lens affects the way you see and perceive things and uh, for example Spanish um, I'm from Mexico Spanish is no word for accountability it translates as responsabilidad but that is responsibility and it's not quite the same as accountability so the fact that you don't even have a word how does that sort of serve or, or sort of like set the stage for for a lot of these governance issues, uh, especially as we move into uh, the sort of digital AI algorithmic governance? Um, so that was like really interesting. And that's kind of like the that that was kind of the discourse that we were having uh, at the UN and like the real effects of of AI and what then and, you know, that it will have on, on society, right? Like security, bias, political manip manipulation, the future of work, concerns relating to global effects, cultural pressures, ethics, um, all of this doesn't really receive enough attention. Uh, and, and so like the, that's, the, that's the world of the UN, like those big, big issues. And so having to discuss a platform or a place where... Um, one can discuss the challenges that, like rapid change, the uneven access, uh, the possibility of like exacerbating the the digital inequality or just like global inequality, um, and and how to safely adopt AI. Um, looking at that global picture, that's what the the UN is there for, and so. Um, you know, that was that was sort of like where we were trying to get to. And we were also trying to get there by showing the power or like maximizing efficiency at the UN by sort of showcasing the power of machine learning and big data and, and data science. Yeah. The next question I have is relating to something I've been hearing about recently, something being done by the EU. Um, so more and more thinkers in this field believe that the United States can learn from like international models of technology regulation. Um, mm -hmm. So something that the European Union is, is starting to do is they're requiring affirmative consent for the collection of biometrics from their citizens. But in general, I don't think we see there being a lot of firm international standards for regulation. 
do you think that that the United Nations might work towards establishing something like this? And yeah, I mean, what what do you think might be some drawbacks of that? Mm, yeah, um, yeah, good question. And and so before I answer that question, I'll actually say that I'm no longer with the UN. Yeah. Um, but you know, just having spent some time in that and like speaking with kind of like putting a, a UN like hat on, but not being an official member of of, of the organization anymore, um, I think. Um, I think it's difficult because I think it's difficult to sort of like really, there is no one size fits all model yet. Um, many different places have their own, uh, sort of roadmap and enabling conditions. And so I think we're, we're still learning from the sort of disparate approaches. And I think that's smart. Um, I also think that right now, uh, it's really more the technology companies that are the animating force and sort of like the drivers and, and are able to shape the policy and the norms because it is the technology companies that really understand this stuff and are applying it. Um, and so the governments are sort of half a step behind, uh, hopefully half a step behind, right? Like you might have some aspects of it or, or applications where there are quite a fair bit behind because they don't necessarily understand that the policymakers don't really understand those sort of the, the details. Um, but, uh, you know, when a company creates an algorithm, misuses an algorithm, they definitely have an outsized impact. So they're able to sort of circumvent policy because the rules are laid, but this is a whole new game, right? The rules no longer apply. Um, and so um, I think I think what the UN can do is sort of taking its global multilateral nature, like play that very essential role of bringing in people together to address these challenges and sort of learn what has worked where and sort of try to come up with that, um, that model or framework that would serve as a guideline for everybody kind of like getting in step, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, like, Given that private corporations, like private technology companies, have such a large foothold in this world, um, mm -hmm. how do you think that you know we can ever make a model of regulation? Because you know they are creating algorithms that have intellectual property. You can't look into them. You can't see what the source code looks like. Um, and I guess so long as that is true, um, how do you think that we might? work towards making these models of regulation like policy yeah yeah that's yeah that's before i answer that question i forgot to mention one other thing and that is um you know we all of these advancements are cross-border right they're, they're they're porous it's not like you can say we're going to regulate this here because it was created here it's 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 used everywhere its users are everywhere and so it's like no one single government can address the impact and so i think that's the benefit of the eu that it's multiple governments um but again if if somebody writes code in the eu and it's used in asia like it's, it's losing its jurisdiction and so i think it, it is important to sort of really have that global voice and that global framework because you don't want this technology imperialism right whereas like you're going to have to be forced to negotiate with whoever is supplying most of your AI and your algorithms. Um, so that was one. And then getting to your um, to your most recent question, that can you repeat it actually? For yeah, me? yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, just 
I guess given the role that private technology companies have in the world of the big big world of AI now, um, and and given that they're so like hidden, I I would say because of intellectual property issues, you can't look and see into their source code. Um, so I guess with that dynamic that we currently have, how do you think that we can we can try and put policy onto that, or or can we now? I yeah, guess? yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So I think I think the global multilateral nature of institutions like the UN will continue to play an essential role, and it's important because uh, again, that software is being written everywhere, um, and you know we do need to we do need to remove those hurdles of accountability, and 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 I think policymakers also need to get get smarter about. Um, I, I think we need more technological people going into policy or policy people dabbling or learning more about technology as well. Um, the University of Chicago uh, have a great program on computational social science, I believe, and policy. Um, and I think it's, it's, you know, it used to be only... Uh, it used to be only, I think, social science, and then they sort of like really added this sort of like technical underpinning to it. Um, and so I think that you know that's the that's the degree of the future where you're like policy and 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 technology. Um, but yeah, we do we do definitely need we do need to sort of remove some of these turtles accountability or this 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 layer of veneer that companies sometimes hide behind, like oh it's proprietary, oh it's a black box. Um, I think we, you know, we've seen the power of of being able to lift the lid open or like bust it open to be able to see what's inside. And and sometimes you don't necessarily need to even have the algorithm, but as long as you have a data set to play with, you can see the effects of tweaking things. And so, um, you know, Julia Angwin, at previously at ProPublica, she did a great job uh, on like being able to to look at, at, at biases and, and issues in, in algorithms that are used in, 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 in sentencing um, without actually having access to the to the algorithm. So it's like we need more of that. And that's the way that we can sort of like really level the playing field and ensure that um, we have a feedback mechanism for for uh, you know algorithms that are in play that aren't necessarily um, equitable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's sort of, that's the that's the model. Um, they say sunshine is the best disinfectant, right? So just being able to like see and tweak and, and really have that that um, loop, that feedback loop, that iteration mm-hmm. on I've deployed something, this is it. Um, yeah, you need to sort of have that um, have that recourse to improve and iterate, yeah. which as an engineer, I think you would want to, right? Yeah. Uh, so it's just about aligning that business interest with with that as well, and providing the policy platform to be able to demand that from the business. Mm-hmm. And, and also just the idea of having maybe more technologically minded people going into policy, and more policy minded people into technology. Like having those two worlds connect much more. Yes, yeah. I think that's super important. Yes, yeah. which is another of those. Which is another one of those like the powers of, of the UN, right? Like we can bring those people together. But I think there definitely does need to be more, uh, more of the technology, technology background or an understanding within some of those within some of those policymakers, right? But yeah. um, I, I read this. I read this great quote 
recently. Social science teaches us how to ask tough questions about important issues, and data science offers powerful methods to help answer those questions. We need to bring these two together, um, especially for this sort of new, new, new frontier, new landscape, and we want to ensure that the the technologies are aligned to 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 humans in terms of the the our moral values and our ethical principles. Right? It's not mm-hmm. just oh, it works from a technology standpoint. Yeah. It also has to be held to this higher um, this higher bar. Like, does it pass? Yeah. Like. I my the the functional goal the you addressing the technical problem but you also want to sort of like really be beneficial right uh, or act in a way yeah. that in in the way that you meant it and so it's like in that trust between humans and machines and as we sort of like go down this road where we're not sure what's going to happen um we you know we definitely need to to ensure that we are um stewarding or shepherding it in the in the right way Mm -hmm. and i I, the one word i want to focus on that you just said was like pass like having Mm -hmm. having these tools pass some kind of test um so i guess in that vein with like testing and regulation models um what insights do you think a representative of like the diplomatic international community like the un um or others what kind of insights do you think that they might have into like a hypothetical regulatory AI agency? Mm. Like so I, I, I think the fact that it is not a one size fits all. I think fr- the frameworks usually work, but it, it's you can't be too prescriptive. Um, mm. A lot of these values that we are going to embed in autonomous systems or um, algorithmic decisions are not universal they're kind of specific um and so to specific to communities specific to tasks i think that is that's that's difficult right um if you think about like the simplest things such as um color red red in western culture is seen as bad um, Chinese culture is seen as good. It's, you know, it's like it's a lucky color. Um, the stock market um, there is like a red day is a good day. Um, and so it's like just like little things like this. Um, um, it's like you, you can't sort of adopt a universal for, for everything and mm-hmm. sort of blend it into, into a, a medium. Um, and so there are these, uh, there are these sort of multiplicity of sort of like Deferring norms and values that conflict with each other, um, and 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 so again, it's 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 really difficult to 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 find this one size fits all approach. And I think that's why it is important to have this multilateral gathering um, of, of of different groups. And uh, yeah, I think also you need to tweak that level of trust and also that um, I guess the fit the system or the rules to the community or wherever it's going to be deployed um Mm -hmm. align the values yeah Um, but i think that's yeah i think that's that's really difficult and i i think it needs specific examples but i think that's one of the that's one of the things that the un does well right like when it comes to the uh climate change agreement or um you know 
uh, combating of autonomous weapons, things like that. It's mm -hmm. like it, it brings people together and tries to think about like these universal human rights um, and sort of use that um, as, as a model. Yeah. So like the attempt to make a universal model without it being a one size fits all, right? And exactly. not like, but on the other end of the spectrum, not being relativism or like cultural relativism in that way. Yes, yes. I you know I firmly believe that we need to look at like global global norms or like cultural norms, especially for something that um, is sort of like making making decisions based on like implicit frameworks and and sometimes like different different cultures look at things very differently and so they approach solving the problem in a completely different way. Um, and so I think that. Um, you know, having the benefit of, of, of involving the world, the international community, all of those different norms gets us to a more centered, like better, better optimal solution. Um, and then drawbacks is just difficult to establish consensus. Right. When you have those, yeah. those dualities in, in sort of in, in beliefs. Um, the next question, main issue, biggest Making making sure we don't fuck up, <laughs> you know, it's like the, the 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 obstacle is that we just get stuck in our ways and sort of like moving along very slowly, thinking that it doesn't matter uh, when when it really does, and, and not getting it right. Or on the flip side, it's, it's like there's a very sweet spot. Like on the flip side, it is um, being too regulated, not being able. To, actually unleash the power of this technology um and that would also be a mistake right it's mm -hmm. like the harm the harm of of action versus the harm of inaction and it's like it's, it's easy to measure when, when like at global pulse we used to call it um it'll come back to me i'll write it down uh but yeah it's basically like a harming the harm that you do because of, of not taking action is a little harder to measure than the harm that you do when you do take action. But both are both are equally equally important to take into account. Like you know, making sure that we are inclusive. Um, a lot of the a lot of the voices, a lot of the sort of the need uh, for for artificial intelligence uh, regulation needs to take into account. Um, Populations that don't necessarily have access to all this yet, right? They might not be digitized, but they can't be forgotten. And so mm -hmm. I think that's like super important, and that's one thing where the UN does does a good job of like convening and bringing in those different voices. Um, although one of the drawbacks of the UN is that they don't necessarily have experts, uh, like technical experts, so they rely on the the the, the private sector in this case, um, or or um, groups like Open AI, Open Society. Um, so Marvin Minsky, the founder of the MIT Media Lab, has two famous quotes that I am pretty fond of because I think they represent the two different polarized viewpoints on artificial intelligence. One is that uh, robots will either be our children or that if we are lucky, they might decide to keep us as pets. So what are your thoughts like, you know, it's hard to ask which camp you live in because there are many more insights that, that we could have. But as far mm -hmm. as those two statements go, where do you find yourself more in? 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, great quote. Great quote. Um, I'm smiling from ear to ear. Uh, I think I'm an optimist by nature, so I think I'm kind of forced to pick, you know, one 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 camp over the other. But I, I I think the takeaway here is that we have the power to control this. To me, AI, machine learning, is sort of a a mirror. Humanity's mirror. Like we are creating it, and we're creating it in in our image. Um, I can be. You know, I guess I'm kind of duplicitous. I can be like sunshiny, smiley person, or a little bit of a devil, if you will. Um, right? Like depending on, on on the kind of day I'm having or the side of the bed that I woke up on. Um, and so I think we have the power to control this and sort of like create, steer it in the direction that reflects our best self and our uh, like the greater good. Um, so. I definitely think that it's not a, it's not written, it's not set in stone. We will, we will determine that based on our actions and our collective sort of will. And it's not going to be easy. It will be very easy to have them keep us as pets, right? It'll take a whole lot more work for them to be our best children. And I think any parent will likely understand it's often very easy to take all the shortcuts, but the shortcuts in the in the long run um, don't give you the desired result, um, right? And so it's, it's, it's really about being good parents. It's like, what have we learned about from our parents, about our parents, um, and about child rearing, if you will. And I have no kids, so I don't know. And I do know I was a pain in the butt with my parents, and they did a pretty fantastic job, uh, nonetheless. Um, so yeah, I really do think it's 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 up to us, and it's the challenge that we have as a society of what we're going to end up with. Um, mm-hmm. And I will leave you with one quote that I often used to bring up at the UN when people would talk about, I don't understand machine learning, I don't understand what this has to do with me, right? I'm a policymaker, I'm an elected official. Uh, and I've never been an elected official or a diplomat per se, uh, but I would usually often respond with an Isaac Asimov quote that reads, I could not bring myself to believe that if knowledge presented danger, the solution was ignorance. Hmm. Force them to reckon with things that they might not understand and, and you know, dig into it, like step up to the plate because this is going to matter. Yeah. And we need you to not sort of glaze over as soon as you hear convolutional neural net. Understand why. And everything can be explained in simple terms. You don't have to be an expert to understand sort of like the applications, the results. Um, and, and, and that was kind of my challenge to them. This is such an important point. And it brought home something that I had been thinking a lot about in the past. If Facebook was trying to sway elections, or if external users were trying to use Facebook to sway elections, you'd think that this could be brought to a body like the United Nations. But as Daniel says, they don't really have the technical expertise to know concretely how it's impacting international users, and outsourcing the work to private entities that don't have the subtle understanding of international policy issues does not bridge this gap. There's nobody there who fully understands both the technical and the policy issues at stake. 
But since the advancement of technology will always inevitably have cross-border implications, it's critical to create a framework for a committee which is well-versed in all the different aspects, the social, legal, ethical, international policy, and the technological, in order to address these issues in a meaningful and knowledgeable way. They must be able to weigh in on the international policy ramifications of technological innovation. Because it is unrealistic to expect international organizations like the United Nations to become technology experts, and because it is equally unrealistic to expect high-tech experts to suddenly become experts in foreign policy, this is why we need a body of people trained to bring all these perspectives together, so that they can act as translators and conversation partners with all the other different specialized constituencies. Next time, we'll be talking with someone from an organization who's trying to do this.